Welcome to DW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan, an Associate Professor of Medicine here at GW and Medical Director of the GW Center for Integrative Medicine. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we talk to Peter Grinspoon, MD, about cannabis myths in his new book, Seeing Through the Smoke, a Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana. Dr. Grinspoon is a primary care physician and cannabis specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital and an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. A certified health and wellness coach, he has provided medical cannabis care for patients for two decades. A widely recognized expert on cannabis science and drug policy, he is a board member of the advocacy group Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. He also regularly appears as an expert on national television and radio programs, including NPR's All Things Considered, NBC Nightly News, C-SPAN's Washington Journal, Fox News, and The New York Times. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Peter. Thanks for having me. It's, you know, it's so great to have you. I've been following your work very closely for quite a long time. After all, uh, there are literally just a handful of us trying to do this amazing work inside large academic centers. Uh, and, you know, I just, I just been admiring what you've achieved and, and basically just the way you've persevered in not such an easy world of, uh, that sometimes puts up a lot of resistance against this topic. And we're definitely going to talk about this in great detail. But, um, you know, let's, this new book, so let's start with that. Uh, what did you hope to accomplish by writing it? Well, there's so much confusion about cannabis. Um, depending on who you speak with, um, you know, which doctor, which lawyer, which social worker, which politician, um, it can either, you can get um, a description of cannabis as either like, you know, the very dangerous narcotic that's addictive without me medical benefits, or you can get um, a description of it as something uh, you know, a very helpful plant-based wellness alternative to many of the heavy-duty pharmaceuticals that we're always bombarded with. I mean, it sounds like two different plants grown on two different planets. So I wanted to trace how we came to having two different views of cannabis. Um, and then I talk about each of the harms, you know, driving, cognition, teens, pregnancy, addiction, each of the benefits, you know, uh, pain, uh, sleep, autism, addiction. Ironically, that's on both sides. And I go through the latest science and I really hope to come to some common ground that we could all agree on so that we could move forward as a society on cannabis. Yeah, the, the, the common ground, uh, this is, it, I think for now it's still a pretty elusive, shaky island that's kind of hard to land on. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll come back to that because I think that's a significant meat of this podcast today, um, sort of what is the future here and how we go. And I think you're one of the few people I know quite well who can really describe this very elegantly. And, and you have some really interesting ideas on how the sort of the future of the country relationship with cannabis, medical particularly, going to look like. But, um, you know, so, so you mentioned some of this sort of back and forth, and, and there's a lot of myths about cannabis on both ends of the spectrum. Let's talk a little bit about this. You know, the myths have been propagated for may, some of them for decades, going all the way back to the, you know, original, even the word marijuana itself has been uh, associated with all kinds of myths. So how did this happen historically? And or why are we are today where we are today? 
Well, it's interesting. Um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, cannabis was a widely accepted and, and widely prescribed medication in the United States. Uh, more than 100 scientific papers were written about it. Uh, when it came to criminalization in 1937, one of the leading voices against criminalization was the American Medical Association. Doctors used to be completely on board with cannabis. Then it became criminalized, having nothing to do with medical concerns. Um, the criminalization had to do with racism and competing commercial interests. And uh, for the last half century, cannabis has been um, just the subject of this incredible disinformation campaign by the U.S. government um, because, you know, they're, they're trying to create a moral panic and a war on drugs. And you couldn't just do that with just heroin and cocaine. There weren't enough people. They had to demonize and taint cannabis. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm second generation. My dad was a legendary uh, cannabis scholar at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Lester Grinspoon. And as he said, uh, the doctors sort of flipped side, sides under the withering pressure from the government, from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was a predecessor to the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. And that doctors have become both victims of and perpetrators of a lot of the misinformation coming from the United States government. And it's only in the last 10, 15 years that, that people have started to hear a more two-sided story uh, about cannabis, about harms as well as benefits. The government has only funded studies until very recently into harms, and they haven't allowed or permitted or funded studies into benefits. So it's all been very one-sided, but fortunately I could say slowly, but surely, and, and, and you and I have discussed this, and there's a lot of institutional inertia, but slowly and surely people, uh, things are getting better and there's a lot more objective information about cannabis that people can find. So do you think that education will trump the ignorance here, so to speak? And, and... Well, it has. I mean, 94% of Americans support legal access to medical marijuana. The patients have figured it out. Name something else that 94% of Americans agree on at this point. They don't even agree that the earth is flat or that the sky is blue or that two plus two equals four. I mean, who would have thought that cannabis unites? Cannabis would be the thing that people would agree upon. The problem is the doctors and the, some of the politicians are much further behind the patients, but patients have figured out that they've been sold a bill of goods on cannabis. Their lived experience or the lived experience of a dad, a brother, a son, in my case, a brother, my brother used it when he had leukemia a long time ago. Uh, and there's nothing more impactful than the witnessing of the alleviation of suffering of a family member. So patients have figured it out and doctors are coming along. Mm -hmm. So we're getting there. I think we're just getting there too slow for our, your and I liking. I think, I think, I think it's a general principle. I, I, I just realized that after like 10 plus years in academia, I realized the most important feature of being an academician is a patient, is to realize that the things you want to see changing around you are always so slow that you just have to be patient enough and persevere. Um, so um, I know I know Janet has an important question to ask, um, but before, before, before I let her ask that, um, you know, this whole thing of uh, war on drugs and, um, you know, like, me as an outsider looking at this since I wasn't here when this all was started and, and you two have been, 
you know, part of what I really want to hear is is kind of the the, the historic precedent, and um, just so that our public understands it, because there's a lot of listeners of this podcast who basically don't have a context. They they hear about war on drugs, but the reality is they're younger than that. I'm particularly thinking my kids, for example, they have no idea what this is, right? Because they've grown up in a world where you know, cannabis is beginning to get normalized, but it's critical not to forget the history. And I want us to kind of spend some time talking about this history here. Well, I couldn't agree with you more about that. Uh, One of the most intense and upsetting chapters in my new book, Seeing Through the Smoke, is the chapter about the war on cannabis users. And what we've done over the last half century to people who are just trying to use cannabis for medical purposes or to change their consciousness. I mean, every single virtually every single society in human history has used psychoactive medications. And it's so ironic in our society and sort of hypocritical which drugs we decide are good drugs, quote unquote, and which are bad drugs. I mean, I prescribe oxycodone all the time uh, in my primary care clinic, yet heroin, which is almost the same thing, will land you in prison. You know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you don't do alcohol or anything else, but everybody's chain smoking cigarettes and using caffeine. It's so arbitrary which drugs are quote unquote good and which are bad, but they created such a moral panic and have just tormented uh, drug users. Um, So again, I have this chapter on the war on cannabis users, and it's very important for us to remember what we've done. For example, there have been 20 million arrests in this country for nonviolent possession of cannabis over the last 50 years. Now, With a four to one ratio, these are people with dark skin, uh, black and brown people, uh, even though whites and blacks use cannabis at the same rate. So there's a huge component of racism. And when you get an arrest record, when you get entangled with the criminal justice system, it, it can be devastating. It could affect your educational prospects, your student loans, your employment prospects, your housing. I mean, we've created generations of poverty, which is why so many people are interested as we re-legalize cannabis now, as we have done fully in 23 states and for medical purposes in 38 states, uh, people are interested in steering some of the profits of this new industry back into the communities that have been devastated. But anyways, it's been very, very uh, traumatic and destructive. Um, You know, what my dad figured out in 1971 when he wrote his uh, seminal book, Marijuana Reconsidered, Uh, which was reviewed in the front page of the New York Times book review, which is probably what gave him the cover. So he wasn't flat out fired by Harvard Medical School at the point. They really didn't like his work on cannabis. Um, But he came to the conclusion that uh, imprisoning, arresting people uh, for cannabis is more harmful than using cannabis. I mean, of course, cannabis has its harms. Uh, Some categories of people shouldn't use it, uh, probably teens. Uh, it hasn't been shown to be safe in pregnancy yet. You know, we use it under some circumstances if it's safer than the other alternatives. But generally speaking, criminalizing cannabis has been so much more harmful than the actual use of cannabis. And the entire war on drugs has been what's described as a war on people. It has nothing to do with the drugs. It's just a war on black and brown people, those who happen to use cannabis. So um, it's winding down on one hand. Uh, we're legalizing some drugs, including cannabis and some psychedelics, on the other hand, is still raging in many parts of the country. And, and we've got to just uh, declare defeat and, you know, retreat from the war on drugs and just end it completely. Because I just don't think law enforcement are the right people 
to be involved with drug policy. I mean, people, everybody uses drugs, almost everybody. People use alcohol, caffeine, tobacco, cannabis, psychedelics. And, you know, people use them anyways, whether they're legal or illegal. And if they're legal, uh, you have a safer supply. And if people get into trouble, they can get help. If they're illegal, people are afraid to ask for help and people get contaminated drugs. I mean, for example, nobody would be dying of opiate overdoses if opiates were legal and regulated and available and we would spend the money treating addiction rather than arresting people and propounding drug users and people who are addicted. So I personally think the war on drugs was a disaster from beginning to end, and we can't end it soon enough, in my opinion. Here, here. So um, Misha asked my question. So I don't have that question to ask. So I'm going to jump to my next one. Is that okay, Misha? Sure. <laughs> I, think I, uh, I think I had a little... So I've been doing this thing where for one day a week, I stopped coughing. And uh-huh. I... Oh, I'm so that that. was yesterday. Not today. <laughs> so I think... Uh, sorry, you guys. If I feel a little hyper... <laughs> I watch my coffee maker brew in the morning, and that's the first activity I do. I'm so addicted. So talking about, right, so right, so we're talking about the, the drugs, and you know, the crazy thing, by the way, caffeine actually kills. There's uh, a couple of dozens of deaths every year attributed to caffeine for people who have a cardiac abnormality, particularly like structural heart disease. And you know, like if you actually look at the direct side effect and toxicity and deaths from cannabis, it's even less because people die from accidents or other things, but they don't die necessarily do from direct toxicity of cannabis. This is just one an example of, um, you know, it's, it's all about politics of the particular substance, not um, the science here is more sophisticated and, and been ignored for a long time. Anyway, sorry, we kind of segued into something else. <laughs> That's okay, because, you know, here on this podcast, we believe in going where the conversation takes us. Now, I just wanted to, Peter, I wanted to ask you about barriers. Now, what are the barriers preventing more providers from using cannabis as a treatment option? Well, first of all, providers know very little about cannabis because we don't teach much about it in medical school and the quality of the education and many of the continuing medical education programs is really bad. I went to one at my my home institution, just a conference on internal medicine, and I was shocked at how terrible uh, the section was on medical marijuana with just the same old nonsense from the drug war. Um, so doctors aren't taught much about cannabis. A lot of what they are taught just isn't true. You know, when I was in medical school, cannabis still like you grew breasts, your testicles fell off, your DNA was damaged. I mean, whatever, it was just complete. So they have to unlearn a lot of stuff. Uh, Doctors are afraid because it's still federally illegal, so they hypothetically could get in trouble with the Drug Enforcement Agency, which controls their controlled substance prescribing. Yet, you know, in reality, the DEA has other things to do. They're not worried about about cannabis, but it's not helpful that it's illegal federally. And then it requires a paradigm shift. If I treat a patient for blood pressure, I'll give them 10 milligrams of, say, lisinopril, say, take this once a day and come back in a month or two and I'll recheck it. Or If I treat your high cholesterol, I might give you uh, 10 milligrams of uh, Lipitor and say, let's recheck this in six months. With cannabis, we can't prescribe it. Uh, We just certify patients. And if it's a knowledgeable doctor, um, 
they can make suggestions. But generally speaking, that just gives the patient the ability to buy cannabis in a, in a medicinal dispensary. And then the patient in an iterative fashion tries different things and sees what works. And that is such a paradigm shift and such a, such a seeding of control from an ordinarily paternalistic relationship between doctor and patient. It's much more of a partnership and it gives the patient so much more agency. I actually think it's good for the patients and good for the doctors. Um, but it's a paradigm shift. And, 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 and the final thing is doctors just don't know any practical know-how. You know, like I'm a medical um, cannabis provider. So is Dr. Kogan. So we could both say, you know, take a tincture with four to one CBD to THC, start with two milligrams at night of THC and increase it slowly, you know, but very, very, very few doctors have this kind of practical know-how to advise patients. So the studies have shown that about 80% of people want to get their information about medical cannabis for their doctors, but only about 2% end up doing so because the doctors don't know anything helpful. Then the doctors complain about the bud tenders, the people working in the dispensaries giving medical advice, which is obviously very inappropriate because they're not trained uh, medically. You know, and the worst case scenario is patient will come in with a migraine and then the bud tender will be like, oh, my cousin had a migraine six years ago at a Grateful Dead concert and smoked some hash. So why don't you try her bubble hash? I mean, that's not medical advice, but I, it just seems hypocritical for the doctors to criticize the patients and the bud tenders if the doctors can't advise the patients themselves. So the solution to all of this is to educate doctors. We need like a Manhattan Project type program to educate doctors about this, the conceptual framework and the practical uh, helpful tips on how to advise patients so that patients can communicate with their doctors, doctors know what's going on, and it's all much safer and more cohesive. And there's so much more um, continuing medical education out there to help them than there, than there was when we started doing the podcast, Misha, right? Yep. No, totally. Absolutely. I mean, we started this podcast in 2018. Right. But so, can, I, can I just say something about that? I agree with you. And that's excellent. One problem is that doctors are like overloaded, burnt out, quietly quitting, retiring. Doctors are like on the verge of collapse. One of my other specialties. And then there's fear. Right. And then there's fear. But there's also a problem that doctors don't agree about cannabis which is a really, really big deal. For example, the psychiatrist came out with a paper recently saying that cannabis should not be treated, be used as a treatment for anxiety, depression, or post-traumatic stress disorder. Many of the things that we freely and very successfully treat people with, with cannabis. So how do you come up with universal continuing med medical education if the, the cannabis physicians, for example, treat people very successfully for anxiety and PTSD with medicinal cannabis, yet the psychiatrists say it makes these things worse and you should never use it. So I think the fact that there's a, a real split in the belief system among doctors makes it very difficult to come up with coherent medical education. It goes back to what I said at the beginning of the podcast. We have two different belief systems, and until we bridge that, it's going to be hard to accomplish these things. You know, and I think the, the so let's go to this kind of issue that I wanted to bring up right away. So the, you know, the fact that inside academia, the split is even deeper. I would say that in the private practice, people beginning to see what's actually happening and they quickly changing their minds once few patients had good benefits. 
But in academia, I personally, and you know, let's talk about this more. It, it looks like that the resistance is shifting so slowly. Uh, it's shifting. It's definitely shifting, but it's shifting extremely slowly. And there's still a lot of pockets, in cer- especially in certain specialties, where it just like psychiatry, you named Mark, where it's just so strong that it's hard to break through. So what would you reflect to that? Well, you know, it's really interesting. I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, the different doctor, doctors are coming around. And at this point, about two thirds of doctors genuinely believe that cannabis is a helpful medicine. And, you know, that's behind the 94% of patients, but it's getting there. But in my experience, uh, the belief system about doctors and cannabis is based a lot on their clinical experience. For example, the oncologists are pretty much in favor of it. Uh, One poll I showed saw showed that more than 90% of oncologists are in favor of medicinal cannabis because they see it helping their patients. On the other hand of the spectrum, we think of like a pediatric psychiatrist where they see the relatively rare but very tragic cases of cannabis destabilizing a, a teen or a young adult with psychosis. And if that's all they see, they're going to think cannabis is pretty nasty. So you have to like generalize your experience and learn from others and not just view it from your own narrow vantage point. But I agree with you, there's a lot of institutional inertia. Um, again, I think we're getting there, but we're getting there a lot more slowly than we could be. And you know, the, the problem is if doctors don't feel comfortable talking about cannabis or believe in it at all, the patients just don't tell them about it. And then that's the worst case scenario when we don't have open communication between doctors and patients. But this is a really important issue. Yeah, so, you know, one thing we've been sort of, well, there, you know, there are a couple of different points can be looked up on here. So Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, which we, you and I both, you're on the board of advisors or the board on an actual board? Oh, yeah, I'm one of the board members. So is right. my dad, by the way. <laughs> right, so. right. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I... I wanted to to meet your dad, but I think uh, unfortunately I got a little, got too, late. Yeah. A little <laughs> too late. Yeah, yeah, he was a really like a, one of the grandfathers of the whole field. Grandfathers, yeah. Anyway, so um, I think one one of the aspects I wanted to kind of touch upon. Um, you brought up the point that doctors just don't know anything. In fact, it's not unusual for a patient to bring in way more resources and teach the doctors. I feel like. And I, I can count on literally like probably dozens of situations where my patients say, oh, yeah, I went to my doc and give him your book, my book, and say, look, read this. And doc said, hmm, interesting. So we have to shift the needle here because, you know, I think that's a key aspect. Until the actual medical students and then residents, fellows and then attendings actually practically understand what to do this kind of acceptance will be very slow. On our end, we've been working, Leslie Mendoza Temple, myself, and then uh, two people from from Israel, we've been working on um, trying to create a list of competencies for medical education, for medical students, basically, that every school in the U.S. and Canada will adapt, uh, slow process, gradually going forward. Uh, What do you see in terms of the other types of um, academic uh, educational initiatives that are going to be essential in upcoming years to shift the needle. Well, first of all, I applaud you guys for doing that. I've seen that, and I'm, I'm very excited that you guys are doing that. That's exactly what we need, so thanks for doing that. Um, you know, there's some low-hanging fruit. You know, there are some issues that are very controversial, like does cannabis cause schizophrenia? I mean, it doesn't, but that's a 
very controversial issue. And, you know, does cannabis make anxiety better or worse? It could make it a lot better if used properly. But, you know, and but I think there is common ground that we could all come up, that we could all agree to. I think there's a lot of common ground. Some low-hanging fruit would be the endocannabinoid system, the system of receptors and neurotransmitters um, through which cannabis works its effects. Everybody needs to understand that. All doctors. It's only taught, according to a recent poll, in 13% of medical schools in the United States. In other countries, they're, they're teaching it because it's so obviously critical. Even if you think cannabis is the devil's lettuce, you need to understand how it works in the body. And also the endocannabinoid system, uh, you know, controls homeostasis, like how our body stays in balance. It controls many of the other systems. So I think we should focus on those areas of common ground, teaching everybody the endocannabinoid system so they understand how cannabis works or doesn't work if that's what they believe, talking about the harms that hopefully we could all agree on. I'll give you an example. Like teenagers shouldn't use cannabis unless, like my brother Danny, they're dying of cancer, so it doesn't matter and it helps them. Or perhaps if they have autism and we think it's a lot safer than the other medications we're using for autism, you know, that's uh, a benefit. Like to be saying that cannabis doesn't help with chronic pain, you'd have to literally still be living in the Stone Ages to say that. I mean, so I think there are certain pockets of common ground that we can start teaching to all doctors. And uh, from that, we can either expand the common ground or have a very healthy uh, basis for friendly, respectful debate. Yeah, the friendly, respectful debates are kind of hard to come by. <laughs> they, they often end up uh, in a little wrong direction. I, I think the, the other key aspect is, you know, generally speaking, uh, when the practice of medicine is established, there are sort of existing guidelines on certain things. You know, and those guidelines are usually written by some kind of respectful organizations, and then they often taken as a kind of a standard of practice. But part of the problem here is we're looking at uh, a natural substance, and I think we do have to name this fact. And because in reality, to create some kind of a standard guideline here, because it's a natural product, is going to be pretty tough. Um, you know, in part because of FDA approval of going to be quite difficult. Um, the pharmaceutical industry, of course trying to get involved here, but very slowly and more importantly, they're not going to be necessarily interested in, in advocating for the botanical products. They'll be interested in advocating only for their own products. So we have a lot of really diverse and competing interests and this quote unquote guidelines, um, until we get there, a lot of the senior physicians probably going to stay away from the whole field. Um, and the guidelines are hard. I mean, we've been, we've had what, total of two pain, chronic pain guidelines on cannabis. And, and the second one is getting a little bit better traction than the first one, but it takes, it's very slow. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about your work at Harvard specifically. Like, I, I'm really curious what you've been trying to, how you've been trying to shift the needle there. Well, I've been involved in a few studies, but primarily I'm a clinician educator. So I just take care of a ton of patients, both in my primary care practice and in my private practice um, for patients, you know, I, I can't take care of everybody in my primary care practice because I also have to do primary care. And I also just do a lot of education. Um, I write for Harvard Health. I speak a lot. I speak to physicians. I write a lot of blogs. I, I just wrote this book. So I primarily focus on education, 
destigmatizing and clinical care, um, you know, which are all related. Uh, you learn a lot from your patients. And um, the other doctors are very hungry for good information about cannabis, which is what I'm finding. You know, some of them are closed-minded and don't really change their opinions. More of the older doctors and and some of the people in like addiction medicine, I'm finding, just want to believe that cannabis is a dangerous narcotic. Mm-hmm. But many of the younger doctors and many of the, uh, you know, people related to internal medicine, the rheumatologists, the oncologists, um, the pain doctors, a, a lot of them are like hungry, desperate for information about cannabis. So I've been focusing a lot on on education. It's really interesting. Um, you know, even the psychiatrists, some of them are, are turning around. I, I spoke to about 280 psychiatrists about two months ago mm-hmm. and for grand rounds. And they asked me, can you see, talk about the, the benefits as well as the harms? Because as psychiatrists, we only get lecture after lecture after lecture on the harms. So I gave a very balanced, these are all the harms. These are all the benefits. This is he specifically asked me to talk about what I treat patients for. So talked about chronic pain, anxiety, insomnia. And the talk was scheduled to be 60 minutes with 30 minutes of questions. And with 10 minutes left, I mean, grand rounds are like a solemn occasion where everybody's polite and on best behavior. Within 10 minutes left of my talk, not even in the question answer period, an elderly psychiatrist like couldn't hold it in anymore, interrupted me, stopped my talk and started yelling about how I was lying and every single thing I was saying was absolutely false, even though half of what I was saying was about the harms and the other half of what was about what I very successfully um, sort of uneventfully treat in my clinic, cannabis clinic. And then the younger psychiatrist started defending me. (laughs) It turned into this big brawl uh, during the grand rounds. And it just goes to show people have such strong feelings about this that that's, you know, one of the, um, you know, the epitaphs. So one of the little quotes I have um, before my book is from Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, the philosopher. And it said, convictions are more dangerous enemies of truth than lies. And I think that's really important for cannabis. So we just have so much work to do educating people by example, uh, by proven clinical success and by didactic education to win over hearts and minds so that doctors can catch up to patients. So I've been very, very busy at Harvard. Um, Harvard has been tolerant of what I do. They haven't been particularly supportive, but they haven't given me a hard time either. Uh, they've sort of taken a don't ask, don't tell uh, <laughs> what I'm doing. I totally I totally connect to you and totally hear you and, and respect. I have, I have exactly the same uh, <laughs> view. Yeah, GW. I just want to make the point that very different than how it was to my dad. They like persecuted my dad. He, for his work on cannabis, they and psychedelics, actually. And my dad wrote a book in 1979 Maybe. called Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered, shouting from the rooftops that we should be studying and using psychedelics uh, in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they retaliated against my dad. They never promoted him to full professor, despite 11 books and 180 scientific papers. I mean, he was like their most famous doctor. And now, 40 years later, at my hospital, we have this great center for the study of psychedelic medicine. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, don't ask, don't tell is better than them persecuting you. So I'm not complaining. Yeah. Right. So... Um... What do you want to do? Anything else you want to tell us about your book? I mean, I think the book is written for a very broad spectrum of readers, for academicians, but also for general public. Anything particularly you want to share with the listeners about the book? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I do talk about my own personal experience. 
both of my brother Danny when he was dying of cancer and how it helped him hold down food. And I talk about my dad, how it helped him in this end-of-life care. Um, cannabis is wonderful for end-of-life care because it can help people who are, who are terminally ill with their anxiety, with their insomnia, with their pain. We only needed three doses of morphine to get my dad from one realm to the next realm, wherever that is. And, you know, the people in hospice are, are a little bit trigger-happy with the morphine. And my dad was so much more alert and with it and communicative with us to the end because we had him on cannabinoids instead of opiates. So in my book, I talk about personal experience. I talk, as I mentioned, about the war on drugs. I talk about how doctors have been on the wrong side of the war on drugs. I call that chapter, Do Be No Harm, because doctors are supposed to do no harm. And then in addition to talking about the harms and the benefits, and I have a chapter on CBD, I talk about the ways in which people use it recreationally but not really recreationally, the ways that people use it to enhance their lifestyle. And I talk about how what a fine line it is between medical and recreational use and how a lot of the use falls in between and how people don't just use it for insomnia and for chronic pain, but they use it to enhance their appreciation of their sexuality and their religion and their spirituality and their appreciation of art and music and how cannabis can can help with creativity. I talk a lot about Carl Sagan, the astronomer, who was a fixture of my childhood because he was a close friend of my dad's, and how it helped his scientific process. And I talk about how cannabis can help people sort of mindfully connect with the present moment and with other people, which is really important given that we're suffering societally from this epidemic of loneliness. Amen. So these are things that used to be heretical uh, or forbidden for physicians to talk about, but I sort of took the plunge and I even talk about how it's helped me in the past with chronic pain and with some personal development and growth and with my writing, in fact. So the book talks runs the whole gamut from like uh, medical uses to recreational uses. It's not uh, encouragement of people to use cannabis, but it's a really good faith effort to present both sides of the issue so that people can move beyond all the nonsense. This is your brain on drugs, all this nonsense and make a truly informed decision about whether or not cannabis might be helpful for them. Yeah, and I, you know, I also want to sort of add um, one other interesting component, which we often forget is the fact that there's a reason why cannabis is sometimes called weed, right? Because it grows as such. <laughs> and yeah. literally, in terms of like this keeping the... When, when we're not calling it the devil's lettuce. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've never heard that before, Peter. Yeah, me neither. Devil's lettuce. <laughs> well, I've heard that a lot, actually. No, I mean, you know, like... A lot of people believe it is the devil's lettuce. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Anyways, okay. Okay. So we my, could talk up forever. Right. But Misha, we need to wrap it up. We need to wrap up. Anyway, my point, I just want to finish my point. It was that the fact that a lot of people who are on a low, low income, they can grow cannabis in their backyards. And we forget the value of raising your own food that then can become a medicine. Now, I think... Peter, you're one of few people who openly takes us into an uncomfortable conversations because we have to have them. It's not an easy topic, by the way, to discuss because, of course, there's pros and cons of doing that. And, you know, but the reality is that then until we start having these difficult conversations, we're never going to come to sort of the comfortable resolution of all these topics. So thank you for... I agree with you completely. And you know, the fact you can grow it is part of why the pharmaceutical industry isn't as interested in it. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. 
Well, thank you for leading us into this fascinating conversation. Everybody, the book, um, the Peter's book is out and it's called Seeing Through the Smoke, a cannabis specialist untangles the truth about marijuana. Uh, get it from your favorite bookstore. And Peter, thank you. Thank you so much for coming to our podcast. Well, thank you guys for having me. I feel like we could have gone on for days and I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, Peter, we definitely are bringing you back because <laughs> I want you and Misha to continue. I'm looking forward to it anytime. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. The Office of Integrative Medicine and Health produces the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast with funds from your donations. Your generosity allows us to raise awareness of the benefits of integrating whole person care, including evidence-based complementary therapies, into healthcare broadly. Help us continue to grow the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation on our website, smhs.gwu.edu slash OIMH. Click the Give Now button on the left. While you're there, sign up for our free monthly newsletter for even more evidence-based content, including free webinars.